2: Streaming and three CR digital, podcast or audio on demand. And of course, the website
0: solidaritybreakfast.org.au.
2: Solidarity forever!
0: And good morning, it's Annie. And Kim. G'day, Kim, how are
2: you? Oh, good.
0: You're a bit tired, you told me before.
2: Yeah, I lied. I'm exhausted.
0: (laughs) (laughs) It's one of those weeks. (laughs) But uh, this week we've got uh, quite an interesting bag of uh, tricks. Uh, We're going to talk to Liz Ross from, uh, uh, see, uh, BLF fame, really. She wrote a a terrific book called uh, Dare to Struggle, Struggle, Dare to to Win. win. That's exactly right. Uh, It's a seminal piece of work on uh, the... the registration of the BLF uh, by a Labor government.
2: Yes, and how the BLF uh, tried to respond to that.
0: And how that, yes, that's mm. right. But anyway, we're going to talk about, uh, we're going to talk to Liz about her opinions in relation to the present attacks on the CFMEU, which was what the BLF morphed into after the uh, incredible level of vicious attack from uh, the uh, government in the well, the ruling class in the guise of the government.
2: Exactly. I mean, because we can learn a lot of lessons from the response to the deregistration, but also, unfortunately, the ruling class learnt a lot from the <laughs> deregistration as well. So It's
0: a bit like one of those energizer batteries. They just keep on keeping on. Exactly. <laughs> and that's right. And then later on, on the same theme, uh, rank and file uh, radio with... Uh, uh, marcus harrington he 's going to have a chat with uh, david Karen from Dave Kerin from uh, the c f m e u in South Australia, which uh, sort of follows onto the same on the same reef uh, because of uh, the latest uh, things that are going on with the uh, building regulator and the uh, Royal Commission that is on on mm. yeah uh, for okay, young and old for young and old and uh, after that of course we 've got uh, Kevin Healy with uh, This Is The Week That Was. And we're going to finally finish the show with a chat with uh, John Rainford.
2: Yes, about social democracy.
0: That's right. Those Uh, traitors. Yeah, the short history of. (laughs) The
2: short history is traitors, I think.
0: (laughs) Okay, that's uh, uh, Solidarity Breakfast on uh, 3CR. Oh, I've, I've just went into a, a great flashback. 3 cr 855 on your AM dial, and of course we're streaming. Check this
2: out, man! this way. This is Izzy Brown from Combat Wombat. 3CR's annual radiothon is almost here. At 3CR, we're calling to you to activate the airwaves by donating your money from the 1st of June till the 14th to 3CR's annual radiothon. So keep 3CR active on the airwaves for another year. Any amount you can afford makes a big difference, so donate. Go online to 3cr.org.au or call us on 94198377. Let's do it together and support 3CR, truly independent community radio. Yeah!
0: Our very own Blues Queen, Izzy. Fantastic. Yes, remember that it's Radiothon. And as I said,
4: we're going to have a chat with Liz Ross. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Here we go. Yeah, well, Royal Commissions are the tool of the ruling class, particularly the coalition governments, to attack unions. What they do is they set up a, 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 you know, this so-called free and open commission put their own chosen people in charge of it, um, set up a whole a whole uh, questioning regime, which means that you don't have any, you know, you don't have any rights to be able to challenge, you know, properly to challenge what's being put up. Hearsay is regularly reported from the commission into the local press, papers like the the Murdoch press, you know, sort of take great deal of joy in doing that sort of thing. But, you know, I have to say that the Liberal press are, you know, in there as, as – the Liberal press are in there as much as the tabloids to attack the unions, to use all the, the information that's partially fabricated, you have to say – um, and use that against the the union. So from the early 1980s, uh, there have been a series of royal commissions supposedly into the illegal criminal acts of building unions, by and large, and that relates partially to the central role that, that building has in the Australian economy, but also because the building unions, by and large, from the really from the post-war period have been the most militant unions in the country – and alongside the MUA, but they—they've been the ones that have really, um, you know, taken things forward in terms of workers' conditions and taken a stand around issues like women's liberation, gay liberation, the South African struggle, you know, uranium—a range of things like that. So that all of those things mean that they're a target for the ruling class. As a consequence of that, of course, then the Royal Commission drags out a whole range of so-called stories about what illegal activities, like going onto a job site and demanding that they see that the union actually can inspect unsafe conditions on the job, that somehow this is something that is illegal, criminal, not to be allowed. And this is the kind of thing that these Royal Commissions focus on. And then from that you get these lurid headlines saying, you know, Uh, illegal activity, criminal activity, whatever. And the commission really is... You can say whatever you like in a Royal Commission.
2: Yes, as well. I think one of the times Nigel Hadjkiss actually cited the Australian headlines from the Australian as a source, he's heading up the commission.
4: commission. Well, at the moment, he's been put in charge of... The not the Royal Commission, but the Building Commission. So there's two things. There's the Royal Commission and then there's a Building Commission, the ABCC, which is tasked with actually implementing the law against the unions. And they have enormous powers. They have the same kind of powers that you have under the terrorism laws. You don't have the right to silence. You're also not allowed to tell anybody about what happened in the hearing. You also can't say things like, You know, I don't know. They won't let you say things like that. So it's not really even just the right to silence. You can't actually... Give an answer like like all the ruling class people do in in a range of hearings where they say oh I don't remember no, etc etc. But in this ABCC setup, you're not even allowed to do that, and they can you know and then they can fine you and do all kinds of things. Um, eventually, they can send you to jail. So there's the ABCC, uh, which in various has been around in various forms since the Howard government. But there's also a royal commission headed up by just at Hayden, they usually pick older um, judges who are retired. You know, these are judges on hundred thousand dollars a year superannuation, and then they get, you know, sixty thousand a year, free travel, whatever, to be able to head up this particular commission. Uh, you know, each royal commission, and then they then they go on the attack against the unions. And one of the one of the classic cases just recently. I mean, it's one thing to take to take the headline from the Australian as, as evidence, but they interviewed. Um, the police recently in Melbourne and the policeman was basically said oh I saw a picture of somebody at a demonstration and they were wearing a patch that said that they belonged to a motorcycle club and from that the papers but also the Royal Commission tried to imply that you know with great big headlines and everything like that, try to imply that this meant that the union was effectively tied up with the biker gangs that they were getting money or you know using using people as enforcers or whatever, just from the fact that the police commissioner had seen a picture of one of the people. Uh, who was a union member, was no longer a union member, at a demonstration with a patch to say that he was in a bikie club. It gives you a sense of what these Royal Commissions are. They're absolutely, they're like inquisitions into unions where really uh, the law means nothing in these things and also the laws as they are at the moment mean that almost if you want to do your job as a union organiser, you will break the law.
2: I think that's what I'd like to ask you a bit more about as well. I think I was calling it the Union Busting Commission. Mm. That's another popular name for it, or the Spanish Inquisition. But I was wondering what the, the relevance of some of the recent developments was about trying to get delegates' names and addresses about finding officials. Um, what do you think their strategy is?
4: Okay, what they've done over the years, first off, back in the 1940s, they deregistered one of the building unions, what was then the BWIU, which has also become the CFMEU. And then in the 1970s, they deregistered the New South Wales branch of the BLF, the Builders' Laborers' Federation. And then in 1986, they deregistered a number of branches of the Builders' Laborers' Federation again. Since that time... This takes a lot of resources and a lot of money to actually deregister a union. And in fact, they didn't succeed in destroying the legacy of the, the Builders' Laborers' Federation because the union has still stayed, the building unions have still stayed quite militant. So what their tactic then was to try to talk about jailing people. That in the end doesn't work because you have you know, martyrs effectively and then people get very angry about that and sort of, you know, oh, they provoke. also break their cover they've made them political prisoners that's right yes exactly and so that means then that the you know you get widespread support for the unions mm. out of that so now what they've decided to do is to look at the corporations law uh, you have probably noticed, but very few um, bosses ever go to jail. Uh, over, <laughs> we've noticed this. <laughs> yeah. the, con- the Commonwealth Bank, you know, the uh, the banks that come to mind, you know, totally sort of. I mean, they fleece people, and they. Yeah. I mean, and it's exposed. Yes. No royal commissions for them. No no jail t- terms for them. Nothing like that. The bankers that caused the um, global meltdown in two thousand and eight, they got public money. So what they want to do now is beef up the Corporations Act and then go for the union officials under those terms because you've got Nigel Hatchkiss going around and, and Stolger from the Royal Commission going around and saying, oh, look, we really support unions. We think that they have an important role and we don't really want to attack the unions, the members. What we want to do is get these criminal leaders. And so what they're saying is that if they can lodge a criminal case against one of the leaders and found them guilty then they can ban them from being in the leadership of the union for 5 years and that's what they want to do now at the moment the fine within under the corporations act is $200,000 they're looking at you know in the millions i think they're not saying that but i think they're looking at the millions in terms of finding individual leaders of the union, plus throwing them in in jail. I
2: was just wondering, how does this kind of match with, because there was also the fines that were levied against individual strikers and they were told that they could not be paid by a third party, i.e. their union. I know that wasn't just the CFMEU. I think it was also some metal workers as well
4: at the moment what they what they want to do is they want to intimidate the the membership and i think that that going after the membership is part of that but they possibly think they can only go so far with that the ruling class more generally has this perverse idea of workers that somehow they're in a union and they're led like sheep in the union that they have no say that they have no control you know that they're not independent you know members of the union that they don't know what's right and wrong and all of that kind of stuff you know that they've joined the union for some economic gain or something you know that they get a decent wage or they join the union because it's an insurance agency or or some such but they don't understand that workers join unions because they want to stand up for their rights and um they think as well that if they take the leadership away from those unions, then that means that um, the union itself will fall apart. And that's what they don't understand about working class organisation, about the working class more generally.
5: Hi, my name is Lex Watton and I listen to 3CR and I hope you do too. I hope that you could support 3CR in its Radiothon because 3CR supports the fight for communities and support in all areas of struggles. So please listen to 3CR. Black Brother Murray and I'm taking it back to the...
0: And you're on 3CR with Annie and Kim, and we've been talking to Liz Ross. We're going to continue to talk to Liz Ross. Give her a bit of a background to Kim, Liz.
2: Uh, Liz has been a long-time activist and socialist um, in the trade union movement and on the left. Um, she was a delegate in the Department of Social Services during the Hawke era, era. Um, and she's also a founding member of the Australian Lesbian and Gay Archives, so also a long-term queer activist as
0: well. Yeah, so, and we're talking to Liz about uh, a a, th- a thing that she knows quite a lot about, because when the BLF were deregistered, she wrote a, a seminal book called uh, "Dare to Struggle, Dare to Win," and uh, she is a mighty person. She's uh, now talking to us about uh, the attacks on the CFMEU with the present Abbott government. I was quite interested. I- about um, certain elements that seem to be coming clear, as you say, about attitudes towards the working class from the ruling class. The CFMEU has uh, worked very hard on supporting the uh, Good Friday appeal for the Children's Hospital. On the site, people have been putting up their flags, you know, for that particular appeal. And on some of the sites, the bosses have said, take them down, take them down. Some people said to me that what it's really about is kind of a, a territory war, that uh, workers are not to express any opinion or freedom
4: on the workplace. That's
2: why they're, I think, trying to also remove all the stickers that they have on their helmets.
4: Well, I think what it is, is to say, yes, that, that the union doesn't... It's to take away any, any trace of the union on site, no matter which way it's done, whether it's through something um, that the union's doing like collecting money for the children's hospital or whether it's wearing a sticker on your helmet that says that you, you know, you're in the CFMEU or you're a scaffolder or something like that or flying a flag on the cranes, the CFMEU fly flags on the cranes, as does the employer. But yes, it's about capital saying to the working class you have no rights here. We are the boss. We are the ones who are going to decide when you come, what you do, when you go, and every single minute of your day, we are going to control. It's not that you're going to be slaves because we they're not paid nothing. They are paid a wage. But it's about stripping people of any sense of collectivity, of any sense of being able to change things on the job or to, to have a say on the job. That is what it's all about. And then the Royal Commission, the laws, all of the other stuff that happens are all part of absolutely you know, destroying the sense of collectivity of workers. That we saw it under the Howard government with the MUA, the way that they tried to d- destroy the MUA. It's that same battle. It's a class war.
2: I think that what you were saying about sort of profits versus wealth is quite... Relevant in that you've got all these construction workers who they've got building these tiny, you know, little apartments in the city that are just at inflated prices and half the time are vacant. And they can make profits out of that. But it is not wealth. It's not what ordinary people need. I mean, we could have construction workers building houses for homeless people, and I'm sure that's what they'd like to. Mm and the kind of is that the kind of thing that the BLF used to talk about?
4: Oh, absolutely. Back in the 70s that was the beginning of a thing called the Green Bands, which probably people know about today, but before before then it wasn't as well known, but the New South Wales branch spearheaded it, but the union as a whole took it up and they they started to say, "Well, look, we don't want to build, well, first off, we don't want to destroy parks and things like that. Uh, also, we want to save some of the buildings that are around that are, you know, beautiful old buildings and they're part of the heritage, they're part of the history of the, of the, the, um, of the country. And they also said, we, we want to decide on what actually, what buildings are put up because during the 70s, there were an enormous amount of houses that were being knocked down to build, build office blocks and that people were saying well you know the building workers were saying we don't want to build office blocks there's a massive need for housing and we want to be able to build housing this is what we want this site to do is to be you know a housing complex for people so the, the union started to take a role in that and again the employers were absolutely outraged by by the unions trying to have us have a say you know like they just they're just Workers, you know, how can they possibly have have any opinions about the aesthetics or, or you know, what a city should look like or how it should be or anything like that? And the the B L F in particular really challenged them on that. And I think that some of the critics of the union must be spinning in their graves because ja- um, Jack Mundy got a, got a, an award for you know saving saving some of the important buildings in in Sydney. So you know the and for 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 conservation basically um, and you know but again as I said the, that's what the that's what the unions can do they can actually take up these issues on behalf of the working class as a whole and you know confront the employers confront the governments and say we want a better society and that's I think that's what the BLF is emblematic of and I think that's what the the attempt to destroy it and the attempt to destroy the CFMEU is really all about as well, is, is to destroy the, the spokespeople for the for the working class as well.
2: The other question that I have is about safety and not just workers' safety, because as we saw with what happened with Grocon on the site near Melbourne University, it's also the safety of the public that the unions ensure. There's obviously safety problems in the mm. industry. Would you be able to go through some of them?
4: When um, John Howard brought in the the ABCC, the Australian Building Construction Commission, in 2002, the number of deaths on the building sites doubled, well, more than doubled, went from four to ten, you know, that's, that's sort of nationally. Uh, so, you know, basically that government has blood on their hands because what they did was stop the union from doing the safety things. What the union used to do is if somebody died on the a building site, then the job would stop and as would the rest of the industry. Everybody would shut down and then nothing would start up again until there was a safety audit of each job. That has stopped now. It does happen sometimes that some of the workplaces stop work, but really it, it's almost back to the days when if somebody died, they'd be an ad in the next day's paper for an, another labourer or somebody like that. So... When I was doing my book on the Builders' Labourers Federation, I interviewed Norm Wallace, who used to be one of the officials in the union in the BLF, and he explained to me that a job can change within 30 seconds. The bu- building sites are constantly changing and you've got to have really good health and safety um, set up there. I mean, that's the kind of thing that where you need a strong union because you, the laws are not enough, the work safe is not enough. You actually have to have somebody... On the job, and I think you know other other unions are finding that some of the same problems, like nurses have got issues about you know violence it's as their society becomes more alienated because of the way that it 's going at the moment. the health and safety arrangements are a highly
0: sophisticated balancing pieces of legislation, a balance between the different sections of power within society, mm. and uh, the present behavior of uh, the ruling class is to damage that balance. That uh, it's always down to the individual worker for mm. OH&S, and that uh, that union shouldn't be part of it, and that uh, the almighty dollar needs to be the only thing indicator of uh, what's product productivity.
4: Well, I think the classic case of that is down in Morwell when the with the fires. You know that that company did not stop work no for one second while the entire town was poisoned and the workers there were poisoned. Mm. And it, and
0: public money was used to bring it, the buyer into check and the person who was running that company was away on holidays and didn't bother coming
4: back. Exactly. You know, you've got the situation too with Grocon. They pleaded guilty to, the, to a lesser charge, got fined $250,000. And three people were killed. The union, which had taken a stand about Grocon's safety record and the lack of help, you know, proper health and safety reps on the job, got fined already over a million, and there's still court cases coming up, and the company wants millions of dollars in damages back. So it's true that more people die at work than die in battle, and it's also true that it doesn't take into account the number of people who've been injured. The, they want to break the unions that actually are the ones who take a stand about health and safety in particular. And... You, if you look at where you've got strong unions, it's it's quite all the figures are in. It's quite clear where you've got strong unions, the the health and safety is far and above anywhere else. That it, it actually saves lives to have a union on the job. Oh, and s issues, um, health issues are uh, enormously costly, but the burden is pushed down onto us and not and not worn by the, by the ruling class. That's the that's fundamental problem. That's where unions have played such an enormously important role in taking that issue up to the employers, taking it up to governments. Um, you know, the big fights about workers' compensation that were in New South Wales and, and down here as well, um, you know, thousands and thousands of workers on the streets saying, no, you can't touch our workers' compensation. This is important. Um, for, for the health and wellbeing of our members of the community at large. And that's, I mean, again, over and over and over again, it's the unions that have made a difference on these issues.
2: We were just talking to Liz Ross about attacks on the building and construction unions, past and present.
0: Yep, that's right. And uh, you're on uh, 3CR with Annie and Kim and at Solidarity Breakfast. We're going to go on to uh, Marcus Harrington's report for uh, Rank and File Radio. And it uh, it's fantastic because it uh, falls into uh, the same... Uh, gambit that we've been following this morning he has a chat with uh, dave Kerrin from uh, the cfmeu in uh, south australia who will give us a bit of an update on uh, what's happening right at this moment
3: and welcome to this week's edition of Rank and File Radio where we will hear part two of the interview with the Secretary of the CFMEU in South Australia, Dave Kerner, as we talk about the federal court proceedings against the Union, the Royal Commission and the Senate vote into the ABCC. I'm the presenter of the program, Marcus Harrington. Okay, it was um, Nigel Hadjkiss, as you mentioned before, the the commissioner of the Fair Work Building Construction Commission, formerly he was a commissioner in the old ABCC on a reported $400,000 a year and um, he's now pursuing you, but it was Hadjkiss and his uh, mates at the ABCC that pursued another South Australian construction worker back in 2009, also over a safety matter. Yes, um,
6: and, and increasingly it's about safety and the new laws they want to bring in are saying that you have to prove it's a safety matter. Um, and, and what's happening with, with, with uh, the ARC tribe issues was they breached their powers. We believe, at the moment, uh, they're systematically going about doing things in a way that will be proven they are breaching their investigative powers, their witness management powers, their litigation policies, and they may well be breaching their own act because they are so hell-bent on destroying unions, they will do anything. And my view is they will break the law to try and destroy the union movement. Now, uh, Nigel Hatchkiss lost his job because of the ARC tribe case and the ABCC was dismantled. Uh, He's back. I've spoken to people in Adelaide who say a lot of what's happening in Adelaide where there's 18 cases is about the fury of the FWBC people who work for the ABCC who were completely shattered when Arc Tribe was found not guilty. And a lot of what's going on over here is payback.
3: OK, and um, safety on site um, never been more prevalent. Uh, just this morning a worker was killed on a construction site in Sydney.
6: Yeah, look it's tragic. We we had two deaths last year in South Australia, one on the Royal Adelaide Hospital the, the FWBC is going on the hospital going through site managers, diaries they um, their... Um, seeking to uh, tell people what to do. Um, They're seeking to get people to say bad things about unions. We're getting complaints from people they're approaching who are being told that they need to cooperate. We're getting builders ringing us up saying, the FWBC saying that they'll lose federal government work unless they um, attack unions. So all these coercive powers that they say they need um, these people need to have a big spotlight put on how they're coercing builders at the moment, how they're dealing with witnesses, because we've got people lining up to say these people are the worst behaved regulator in Australia.
3: And uh, what powers does the Fair Work uh, Building and Construction Commission have and uh, how do they operate?
6: Well, they, they basically, the other day they called police on sort a of union official um, who went on a building site. And the union official was told this by the police who came round to the office. And um, we rang up the South Australian police minister and we we arranged a meeting with the sergeant of the Adelaide police station who's explained to police officers that it's not the role of the FWBC to order round the South Australian police. So what you've got is a federal agency running around. All the big jobs here are mainly funded by the South Australian government, wreaking havoc, suing officials... Um, threatening builders, and none of this is being mentioned in the Senate estimates. None of this is able to be dealt with through um, authorities because there's no federal ICAC. So you have um, a regulator that's saying, "Look at what the unions are doing." My view is they, what they are doing, is is the worst I've ever seen in Australia.
3: Okay, and the coercive powers you mentioned before. Uh, what about? Um Representation? Are you able to choose your own legal well, representation when it comes to the?
6: Well, it's really interesting. They talk about protecting witnesses, but they don't. They go and they get middle managers on building sites trying to make them testify against unions. They don't offer them independent legal representation. These guys get sold by their bosses. They have to get involved. These guys have come to us and said, "We don't want to be involved." But the FWBC is saying, "Well, if you don't play the game with us." that you'll lose federal government contracts to their bosses. So the climate of fear and coercion and hostility is all being fostered by the FWBC. And coercive powers, Putting putting giving coercive powers to the type of people who are running the FWBC now um, is a terrible thing to do in my view. It's like putting the fox in charge of the chicken coop and they've got bad form in the past, and as more cases come to light people will see exactly how bad their form is and how closely their role is with the Federal Liberal Government.
3: Okay, and this case affirms the uh, Conservative Abbott Liberal Government and the corporations are placing profit and productivity above safety and welfare of the workers. When does your case uh, get heard in the Federal Court?
6: Yeah, well in October that's that's what we'll be looking at. And people are looking at this case and saying, what, you're taking union officials to court for trying to assist workers in suicide interventions because all they want to do is try and bury the union. And in this particular case, they've been hiding from, they've been trying to run away from it, but it just shows that they will do anything and attack anyone to try and make the union look bad. But our view is um, that these people, are uh, the spotlight needs to be put on them. Um, and then the spotlight needs to go on how they work hand-in-hand with the Royal Commission and the Federal Liberal Government and how the entire circus is an attack on unions and one of the biggest wastes of taxpayers' money in the history of Royal Commissions, and then they will probably find that arising from it, the true bottom of the harbour in the building industry will come out and there'll be a need for regulation of
3: the types of people that cooked up these schemes in the first place through a federal ICAC. There's been uh, two cases which, uh, Arc Tribe, as you mentioned before, and uh, an official here in Victoria, Noel Washington, um, they stood up and refused to answer questions. Uh, They were pulled before the courts and there was uh, mass mobilisations of of workers for a year or so and both uh, both of those workers' uh, cases were thrown out in the end. um, So... Hopefully we'll see that same uh, mobilisation in support of the South Australian CFMEU.
6: Yeah, look, it's a national issue. It's something all Australians should be aware of. People are just horrified. And as it comes to light, there needs to be, as you said, mobilisation and there needs to be, um, be attacks on it. But these, these, these institutions and organisations and political parties involved in these disgraces, they need to be brought to account. And they need to be exposed because otherwise they'll keep running out their propaganda um, to suit themselves while workers are busy, workers are dying, while people are suffering mental health issues, while hundreds of millions of dollars in underpayments of wages are becoming the flavour of the building industry and exploitation and rorts by builders on federal government contracts is also starting to become apparent. So. We think there's a there's a fair way to go on this, but the more the truth comes out, the more people will be appalled by the actions of the government, the Royal Commission and the
3: FWBC. And surely when the recommendations of this uh, Royal Commission headed by uh, Dyson Hayden, I mean, surely one of the recommendations will have to be an inquiry into the building companies and the way they operate the exploitation of workers, as you mentioned, the 457 and all the deaths on site.
6: Yeah, absolutely. These are the things that should be being looked at. But I also think the calling of the Royal Commission itself was a purely political stunt and should never have occurred. And also, we'd say the regulators themselves are in need of serious investigation for a systematic abuse of power.
3: With the crossbench senators, how have they responded to, to the unions?
6: Um, the unions have been working hard, talking to people, explaining to people how things work. It, it's, very, it's very tough going, explaining to people the complexities of the building industry, um, I think people are just starting to understand. So when we say to cross crossbenchers, you know that, that that hard-working union officials are being sued for trying to help workers with problems with mental health, they they go, you're kidding. Um, so there's been an intense propaganda war run by Hedges and Stolger um, and Abetz to say unions are terrible, but... Even with the media, I think they can only say that for so long before people go, why are they doing it? What's the benefit to them? Um, what's really behind all their actions and their expenditure and their attacks? Um, and my view is it's covering up the bigger picture, which is a building industry that is becoming corrupted and ex- by exploitation of workers in big companies. And you've actually got people spending taxpayers' money to protect them. And that, to me, is the, the essence of the problem and the real bottom of the harbour.
3: OK, with the, uh, the ABCC, what powers will this renewed body have?
6: Well, at the moment, they've got the so They're trying to beef it up with more powers, coercive coer- powers. Um, and at the moment, because it was left in, in place as a body by the last government, um, it didn't take long for them to supercharge it put in some people who have terrible ideological views um, and then use all the powers of the state against democratically elected worker organisations. So if you leave leave something sitting there, these people will get in there and abuse it, turn it for their own purposes um, and attack workers. So these type of institutions should not exist. They should not treat one group of workers differently to any other group of workers. And they should certainly not lie and try and deceive the community about what building unions and, and other unions are. They are fantastic organisations that do a great job for their members. Um, and to turn around and try and demonise, criminalise and attack at the taxpayer's expense is, is, is again, it's an appalling use of taxpayer's money and it's, it's an appalling um, public
3: policy. Oh, that's right. Is uh, people like Hadjkiss and Abbott and Abetz. I mean, are they jealous of some of our wages and conditions that we've all had to fight for? Yeah,
6: it, 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 these people feel intense hatred toward unions and, and see political gain by attacking them. Um, that was not the case in the Victorian election. Um, they tried to attack the CFMEU and the Liberal Party lost an election. But, you know, the politics of hate and the politics of division and the politics of criminalisation of a group within society by a government, a regulator and a commission, the the community always needs to be on guard against that and stand up and oppose it for what it is because you cannot let um, society such as ours be destroyed by the type of people who are trying to destroy trade
3: unions. And that's right. Uh, bad laws must be opposed and must be uh, resisted, such as what was demonstrated in Ballarat back in 1854 when those miners uh, who were had bad laws imposed upon them and uh, took it up to the state. and Many of those workers, as we know, lost their lives uh, fighting for democratic rights.
6: Absolutely. People, people do fight for these things because they're important. People will support those who fight against draconian laws. Um, and we're in that situation now, so we urge everyone to to get behind the unions as, as they fight against the um, the appalling Royal Commission and the disgraceful FWBC and, and, and the role of the Liberal National Party in um, trying to destroy the fabric of Australian society for their own political benefit.
3: And one thing, Tony Abbott, any other politician, any other company or corporation needs to remember, um, there's been numerous governments come and go in the last hundred years. A lot of companies have come and gone, but one thing's always been there, and that's the union, and the union will continue uh, to fight on and, and to live.
6: Yeah, absolutely, and a lot of us have been discussing it, and we, we think it's it's probably the biggest assault on unions that many of us have ever seen uh, in our lifetimes, um, and, and it's up to the current generations to stand up and fight against it.
3: Thanks, Dave, uh, for joining me this morning on Rankin File Radio.
6: Yeah, great. Keep up the good work.
3: And that concludes the two part interview with the leader of the CFMU in South Australia, Dave Kerner. Next, we're going to go back to 2009 and hear from ARC Tribe on the day he was found not guilty after being pursued by the ABCC. I've been the presenter of the program, Marcus Harrington. You've been listening to Rank and File Radio on Community Radio 3CR 855 AM.
5: This what the outcome is, I promise you
0: I'll follow it through to the end. But the war will continue, and if we don't fight,
4: we'll lose. One law for all! One law for all!
1: One law for all! One law for all! If you haven't heard,
5: if you haven't already heard, the court has found our tribe not guilty!
7: Victory for working
5: Australians! You can't do that to us. That's right. This is Brother West from the American Empire, trying to keep alive the legacy of John Coltrane, Curtis Mayfield, Nina Simone, and I am so glad you are listening to 3CR because 3CR is a force for good. It's telling the truth and allows you both to laugh—not at, but with others. Oh, what a grand
3: radio!
0: It is. Isn't that wonderful? That was Cornell West. Cornel West did an interview with Sister Zaya from Hip Sister Hop, uh, which is a program that's on 3CR on a Monday, I believe. Yes. Anyway, um, he's just fabulous. She's going to play that interview during her program on that Monday. I think it's sort of one to two. I think that's the, uh, program time. I may be wrong, but it's about then. But anyway, fantastic. As I was telling, uh, telling Kim here, it was, uh, like a cool fest in the studio. I was doing the panel and, uh, they are just wonderful. Sister Zaya and, uh, Cornell West. And uh, fantastic stuff. He,
2: fantastic he, voice.
0: Fantastic voice. He's a, he's a man. He's an American philosopher uh, on the uh, right side of uh, the angels. Uh, we've just been listening to uh, Marcus Harrington talking to Dave Curran. No, Kerner. I got the name wrong. Kerner. He's the South Australian CFMU man. And uh, as I said, he it's uh, he brought us up to date on uh, what's going on with the. Uh, Abbott government's uh, attack dog, the uh, Royal Commission and the building uh, re- uh, regulator.
2: Mm. Mm.
0: You've got something to tell us?
2: Yeah, um, there's going. To, people might have heard um, that there's going to be a rally on May 31st um, at the Richmond Town Hall. I think it starts at 12.30. Um, but it's actually to do with um, the Reclaim Australia people. People might have heard that there was a right wing split from the reclaim Australia, if you can imagine, (laughs) uh, such a thing. Um, So that's, I think, the people who they see more as fascists. Um, But anyway, they've called a rally against the left, if you can believe it. Um, So there's going to be a counter demonstration of the left. um, And we've got to make sure that it's much bigger than the
0: right. (laughs) So it's down a Bridge Road, is it? Yes, um, at the
2: Richmond Town Hall, um, unless the uh, venue has changed. But people should keep an eye out for that because I don't think we should we should tell these people that it's not on for them to call a rally against the left. Mm.
0: <laughs> That's right. Yeah, it's pretty funny. Uh, actually, that uh, whole uh, event, I did go down there and take the recorder. It was a very disturbing affair, that uh, uh, demonstration reclaimed the night on uh
2: or reclaim Australia.
0: Oh, reclaim Australia. Sorry, that's right. I mean, that's the thing. This devious use of uh, terms that have already been used for very positive things. Reclaim mm. the night. Reclaim Australia. But well, also, it's like city.
2: Aboriginal people. Are like, uh, excuse me, reclaim Australia. <laughs> oh, yeah,
0: <laughs> God. That's right, exactly. Um, anyway, there are other couple of things that uh, took uh, my notice over the week. One of them was the uh, fact that uh, I don't, a little known fact, or maybe you did know that uh, special forces, Indonesian. Special forces and US troops were doing uh, shooting competitions in Victoria this uh, week. Yes, disgusting. And, and the uh, they must have they must have been auspiced by the Australian Army, I'd have to say. And that the uh, Indonesian special forces were better shooters than the US. They won the shooting competition, and we uh, uh, were wondering if it was because they had so much practice shooting West Papuans. That was yeah. put forward by a West Papuan activist who uh, informed us of this event.
2: Well, Australia basically trains these... You can't really call them army squads. I mean, they're basically assassination squads. That's what they do going around, assassinating um, West Papuan resistance leaders.
0: Yeah, it's outrageous. So on a, a positive note in regards to West Papua, there is a, uh, a flotilla being... Um, organized uh for later and uh, there's been uh you know going from darwin uh later in the year and uh there have been um uh, events uh, there's recently there was an event a musical event and uh, uh to uh, raise uh, funds and uh the happy news about that was that that was may the fifteenth and uh happy news about that was that they raised over two thousand dollars wonderful yes, they were mighty happy and uh, they will proceed in their ongoing efforts to uh, gather enough money to uh, start that flotilla thing happening. You might remember that the Freedom Flotilla uh, happened uh, earlier on. There was a Freedom Flotilla that was from the central Australia right up to uh, the top of Australia, and then uh boat that went over to uh, West Palpio to uh, um, pass a message stick effectively because there's a connection between the uh, uh, First People of Australia and the West Palpians.
2: Mm. Weren't there Aboriginal elders representatives on the flotilla That's as well? exactly
0: right. And that was what it was about. It was about uh, the, uh, friend, uh, the uh, stretching of the arm of friendship across the waters to fellows in West Palpua. And uh, because, of course, the Afra Furia Sea, is that what it's called, um, between uh, 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 West, um, Papua New Guinea and Australia is uh, very shallow, in fact. And, oh, really? Uh, yeah, yeah. And uh, it's uh, those land masses were connected. Those peoples have uh, traditions and stories that are in uh, sympathy with each other. Yeah, and it was it was it's a deep and important uh, country uh, spiritual uh, connection that the two groups have,
2: mm, as well as I suppose the political simil- similarities of being kicked off your land for mining and <laughs> yeah, money.
0: There would be a certain level of uh, understanding. Anyway, it's eight twenty, and it's time for the week that was.
1: A weak solidarity, Bricky Team, listener, when infrastructure, True true Blue Aussie, told us congestion was strangling our cities, costing the great corporates who make life better for all of us billions. And the solution lies in making lots more road space, lots more freeways and road widenings, and handing all our roads over to the private sector so the roads can be efficient. And most of them are. At about 3am, they just become a bit more inefficient when people actually want to use them. The solution was announced when Big Supremo Tiny, a bit more for the bosses, Mm. launched the report yesterday. We need a national debate on how to stop our cities becoming more clogged. More public transport, Tony? Obviously, public transport has no role in the debate. Through all that, the polls suggest the caring business class party and the socialist party, those ideological opposites, are now running head-to-head in the big race that doesn't stop a nation. And as for preferred big supremo, overwhelming support for none of the above. After soccer the public purse to us big supremo Frank Lowy and getting lowery, particularly while falling off the platform after a soccer match, who saw the billions he demanded off the public purse to bring a World Cup to True Blue Aussie attract exactly one vote, Presumably his own, Frank, who spent his life ensuring the very rich get very richer and stuff the rest of you, after he fell off the platform, took a very low scoring naught 0-out-of-10 billy dive, commentators later reported, good news, he's okay, and I thought, why's that good news? No, only joking, Frank, the week that was would hate to see anything bad happen to a great true blue Aussie who's devoted his life to getting richer and richer and stuff the rest of us and raising two clearly brilliant offspring so brilliant they are now big caring employers in the same lowy than low company working their talented way up from the top devoting their altruistic lives to getting richer than rich and stuff the rest of us. The filthy rich getting filthy richer, just in case you think I'm being critical, is social concern, generating wealth, investment and jobs, pillars of decent society, whereas the stuffed rest of us show our social irresponsibility by maintaining that social scourge, a sense of entitlement. And now the social microscope has exposed the nest of evil where entitlement is threatening the very fabric of society. Caring employers in the liquefied natural gas industry have pointed to major impediments to investment with, hard as it is to believe, inflexible industrial relations topping the list. In this case, and doesn't this show what unreasonable expectations and barriers poor caring employers have to face an entitlement attitude in the workforce. Well, we've come to expect an entitlement attitude with doll pledges and welfare cheats and lazy pensioners and rorting fraudster mothers and women, but... Now society is confronted with lazy, avaricious workers so presumptuous in their unreasonable entitlement expectations, they probably even argue they're entitled to being paid at the end of the week, for instance. Probably even expect their besieged caring employers to provide expensive safety on the job. How caring employers must ponder how anyone could have a sense of entitlement. But that probably explains why the riffraff are the riffraff. On caring resource industry employers copping it from all directions, the firm, unwavering commitment required by a great leader was evident from Big Supremo Tiny. I think there's no doubt we should hold an inquiry into the iron ore industry. Uh, Why should we have an inquiry, Tiny. I never said we should have an inquiry. What made you think we should have an inquiry? So we shouldn't have an inquiry. Look, didn't you hear me? Clearly we should have an inquiry. And what should the inquiry look at? Nothing. Clearly there is no case for having an inquiry. It's great to have a thinker running the show in Canberra, isn't it? And and the issue has certainly put our old mate Twitty on a learning curve. He's learned the resources he digs up belong to the people. Twitty has twigged, and therefore it's the government's responsibility to create an atmosphere in which Twitty can make a killing, mostly by handing him the public purse. Oh, so given it belongs to the people, you have a responsibility to pay a resources tax, Twitty? That would be an impediment to competition. The government should pay us for digging up the resources which otherwise would just lie there. We're doing the country a favour. On competition, the government has a responsibility to inquire into why other companies are using the great market force's ingredient of competition to make me uncompetitive. Uh, But Twitty, isn't that the essence of the system you love? Not when they do it to me! The big P1 news of the week, where else but the Lord Rupert of whopping sin? Big picky of the ubiquitous Jen, modelling this summer fashion for the great department store for which she is a salesperson. Then the vital news, Jen is shooting, as they say, the spring-summer collection at a western true blue Aussie beach. It's always hard shooting the summer fashion range in our winter, but it's so exciting to be shooting here. And the coastline is quintessentially Australian, Jen bubbled. Good point, Jen, but just wonder if you could tell us which bit of the True Blue Aussie coastline is not quintessentially True Blue Aussie, given that it's actually, in wait for it, True Blue Aussie. But then the P1 scoop really moved into the hard news, biggest event in the whole world today area. The True Blue Aussie next top model host said the striking, uh, striking uh, setting complemented this season's trends. One of my fashion looks for summer... And I'd advise us to write this down, our uh, noted listener, because we don't want to be stuck in last year's looks. One of my favourite looks for summer is the reminiscence trend, which has a romantic, relaxed 70s feel in a muted summer colour palette of mint green, dusty pink and white. Mmm. Can't wait and well-rehearsed, Jen. The great department store will be so proud of you. The story then moved into even more heart-hitting territory by telling us which new elite, tray-chic, trays-expensive, quote, celebrity favourite labels will join the great department store's stable this year. That nonsense, some might say free ad, but we wouldn't, of course, passes in Lord Rupert territory as news! And given the other P1 story was about our old mate Cardinal George Appalling, or Pell Potter as some call him, and the appalling sex abuse, it was obvious what the headline over the usual suspect Lord Rupert Hack Lackey columnist giant fought for the day referred to Church's silence just indefensible. Well, no. Not a word about sex abuse. He attacked the churches for not attacking Islam. Oh, well, the Christian churches. And having said Islam menaces the freedoms of women, gays and Christians, showing he supports women, gays and Christians, he then had a second piece next to that attacking women journalists who asked difficult questions to his business class party mates. No, ladies, he concludes, high-profile women should not whinge when they too are judged on their demerits. It's weak and it's sexist. Doesn't the mind boggle at what he might have come up with if he didn't support the freedom of women? See, who said the Laws and Ass Award of the Week to the Indonesia and Other People's Business Constitutional Court for dismissing an appeal by Myurin Suk- Sukumaran and Andrew Chan on the sensible legal grounds that they had been executed? No appearance, Your Worship. Probably better than proceeding and finding they had a case. Ah, uh, unexecute them. On logic and the Constitution, top marks to Caring Business Class Party Senator Corey Byrne Idiots, who is leading an inquiry into hell's all food. It's called halal, Corey. It causes people to impose hell on all of us. Eat hell's all food and you'll become an instant terrorist. Uh, Will you also look at kosher food, Corey, which is really the same thing? Kosher food inspires peace and love thy neighbour. That's why Zion loves its neighbours so much it occupies more and more of their land so it can bring them the peace their food inspires. And I know you've been diverted by this campaign about Islam and Arab terrorism, Corey, but I see a majority overwhelmingly support our indigenous people, the first people being recognised in the constitution. I totally oppose that, because I oppose anything that brings racism into this great country, that encourages division. Corey did say he was a constitutional conservative, but, but I'm not sure he needed to say it, that it was absolutely necessary to spell it out. Finally, on logic and Corey, Corey and the government are working to make life a little safer for all of us, holding predetermined inquiries into these long-haired commie greenie wooden-work-in-iron environmental groups which abuse their tax-deduction status by, wait for it, acting on environmental issues. Who would have thought? And another neutral, unbiased inquiry into evil unions handing out election material at elections. How dare workers interfere with elections? The last thing we want is vested interests influencing the political process. It's bad enough, Corey spoke for all of us who love this great country, that those black people a dirty, sad, shoe, un-Christian lot try to whip up racial and religious division. Good
3: point, Corey. Good morning. Mm -hmm.
6: The recent devastating earthquake in Nepal has caused a massive loss of life and rendered a large number of people injured and homeless. The Nepalese Earthquake Relief and Welfare Committee is providing vital support to the relief operations in Nepal. They are appealing to all Victorians for support and assistance. You can help by providing financial support, working as a volunteer, or by promoting the appeal on social media. For more information, go to 3cr.org.au or check out the Facebook page, Victorians Stand Together for Nepal.
0: You're on Solidarity Breakfast with Annie and Kim. You were just saying that you had dinner with your Nepalese friend last night.
2: Yes, I was quite terrified actually when the Earthquake happened, and I Facebooked her because that's what you do nowadays. Uh, but her and her family are fine. But as she was saying, it's it you know it's good to keep giving aid to Nepal because this is it's not been in the news as much as things like the execution of those Australians in Indonesia. Um, but this is a time when people are really suffering because they are feeling the effects of um, you know Libyan in quotes, close quarters of disease not being properly housed um, and people kind of forget about what's happened once it comes out of the news.
0: Yeah, the shock, the absolute terror and shock. What's the um, weather like? Is it winter? In Nepal. Yeah.
2: Um, Because Nepal has such incredible um, diversity in terms of altitude, it probably has all seasons at the same, same time, time in, in particular yeah. points. Yeah. Yeah.
0: yeah. 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 I was just, <laughs> just imagining it. Uh now we're moving on to our little chat with uh John Rainford who's written this book called uh, A Short History of Social Democracies mm. and um he uh it's really about it has is does social democracy have any legs
2: exactly and also I think he's on a mission to actually tell young people what social democracy, democracy is, because as he points out, anyone who was before, born before 1975 doesn't remember
0: <laughs> full employment. <laughs> That's right. So let's let's start. One of the things
5: we tend to, to forget um, is that uh, while the turn to neoliberalism is commonly and quite correctly associated with uh, Ronald Reagan in the US and Margaret Thatcher in the UK... There is a tendency to forget that many countries, um, Australia, New Zealand, France, and Germany, prominent amongst them, it was parties of social democracy, the Labour parties that, that led the way. So one of the points of the um, of writing the book is to, A, firstly, put uh, social democracy and its development uh, in a historical uh, context, and um, uh, to look at what it what its gains were, um, and then to to examine whether or not uh, it's possible to return to a social democracy. I come to the conclusion that, that it's not. And from there, I think uh, one has to work out what, uh, what might constitute a, a liberating uh, politics uh, for this century.
0: Uh, it's really interesting because, in a funny kind of a way, you get this impression that uh, the neoliberal race, as it were, uh, must have started at some point, and uh, therefore, in a way, there's been this inexorable movement towards making financial capital the king or queen and everything else and everybody else subservient to it. Is is that a correct way of looking at it?
5: Yes, I think it is. Uh, and uh, the start of it, really, I think, can be located with... Um, the so-called crisis of uh, Keynesianism and the Keynesian economics that underpinned the the welfare state and full employment uh, in all the rich countries, at least, from the end of the Second World War. So along came that crisis in 1974. Milton Friedman, uh, a few years later, was out uh, in Australia, one of the chief uh, architects of uh, neoliberalism, along with Friedrich uh, Hayek. And gradually, in Australia, or at least neoliberal economics come to the fore. You could say, I suppose, that from 1983, when the Hawke government was was elected, that's where we saw a lot of neoliberal uh, prescriptions being actually brought in for the first time. The privatisation of Qantas, the Commonwealth Bank, and those sorts of things really set it in train. And of course, a more conservative, liberal government was on, only going to go one way, and that's further with it, with you know further privatisations and so on. But the really big loss that that concerns me uh, in lots of ways, because I was a beneficiary of the golden years, of social democracy with full employment and the welfare state, and you know a terrific education system and public housing and uh, and all of that, um, is that anyone born after. Uh, 1975 would not have known um, full employment and it was a really different world when we had uh, strong unions and, and full employment so I mean one of the hopes of the, is to you know, get people familiar with that and to try and chart some new way forward really.
2: Yeah I think that's a fabulous idea as someone who was born in the 80s I have no idea what <laughs> full employment looks like and can't really imagine it. Um, I want to ask you about the process of neoliberalism in Australia because I think it's really interesting and bears a lot on the anti-budget sentiment today, that in Australia there wasn't that ideological battle like the one that was waged by Thatcher. In Australia they did it sneakily by bringing in the social wage and the accord. So I was wondering how do you think that bears on what's happening in politics in this country at the moment?
5: Well, I, I think that's correct. That uh, that certainly was the uh, was the start of it. Um, the union movement started to fragment during the years of the uh, of the Accord. And while it's true to say that there were you know structural factors in the economy that uh, contributed to that, um, the loss of you know well paid, highly unionised manufacturing jobs uh, on the one hand, and the rise of uh, low paid service sector and casual and part-time jobs on the other. That's really, it was really in the period of the Hawke and Keating government that, that started. And the Accord was nothing more than a vehicle of, of wage restraint. Um, the social wage during most of the uh, period of the Hawke and Keating government hardly moved at all, which was, again, another promise of the Accord. And that was for several reasons. Um, uh, one of them was that, it was that There was a quarantining of uh, benefits, uh, there was a Medicare co-payment uh, introduced by a, a Labour government, there were university fees introduced by a Labour government. So the social wage didn't move much at all, and real wages went further and further behind. And it was during that period that the Australian Union movement suffered uh, its greatest loss of members ever. So that is most certainly the start of it.
0: One of the things that's most interesting about uh, this whole uh, neoliberal arrangement is the role that government plays or doesn't play. It's like a middleman in a criminal act uh, where you've got a an entity which is slowly but surely draining its own life out of its own body. Privatisation meaning that governments have no income streams and of course, if there's no income equals no power within the structure structural framework of a social democracy
5: yes um it's it's almost as if governments are there to facilitate one thing uh, and and that is um, the democratization of uh, of just about everything that it's possible to uh, to marketize um and the result is, uh, obviously enough, government revenue uh, goes down, which makes it difficult to provide for social services, even if government had the intention of, of doing so. And one good example of that is the, the Orwellian Core Newstart Allowance, which hasn't moved in real terms for about 23 years. I think it's now, for a single person, about $248 a week, the government in its Budget the other day, back down on the idea of uh, making people under thirty wait six months for it, and uh, it now it's only a month. Well, yeah, it would be that those politicians would try and live on two hundred and forty-eight dollars uh, a week, and uh, would be that they'd have the experience of having even that measly amount denied uh, from them for uh, for a month. It really is, uh, you know, a punitive measure on those people who inevitably. You know fall out of the uh of of the market um and that must be so while uh, we've got um you know a neoliberal framework um and the the rate of casualization and um uh, part timers in the workforce is uh by some measures it's forty percent in academia it's said to be sixty percent so that becomes the new norm and one of the Points about the book is the hope that the inevitable capitalism.
0: So, what basically what what's been said is that we're going back to a period of time before all of uh, the gains that uh, working class people made during the 20th century.
5: Yes, I think that's true. We're we're going. Uh, we are indeed already uh, yeah. in all of the rich countries, at least, uh, back in a position that's. Uh, not at all dissimilar to uh, to what occurred um, after the Great Depression. So, in in that period in the early 1930s, where you know capital ruled and brooked no uh, no opposition. The one thing, though, that that I would point out is that um, the book is a survey of social democracy throughout basically the uh, the rich world, and almost all of the social democratic and labour parties have gone down the neoliberal path. But there is something of an exception. There is still, uh, you know, a residue at least of social democracy in the in the Nordic uh, countries. But they are uh, the exception. But nevertheless, uh, I, I think that that does have to be pointed out.
0: And you're on uh, Solidarity Breakfast with Annie and Kim and we're talking to John Rainford, who is the author of A Short History of Social Democracy. And we had a call from... Uh, Someone who wanted to say that uh, even though he is a good speaker, he uh, missed the point that women were never equal because we've never had equal pay.
2: Yeah, and we have fought for equal pay and unions have fought for equal pay, but enforcing it on the shop floor is something completely different.
0: Yeah, exactly. Well we'll proceed with the rest of what John's got to say. Now, I'll just mention that John was a unionist and a union official all his life. And 10 years ago, he he uh, stopped that because he was going blind. And um, decided that he was going to write books and write uh, films. He's a filmmaker and uh, he was one of the people in the collaboration that made uh, Radical Wollongong. I don't know if you know, but Ra- Radical Wollongong went off to a uh, festival in uh, Canada, a, a Labour film festival, and it won top prize. Wonderful. Yeah, very nice. Anyway, we can proceed with our chat with uh, John Rainford. I'd like to uh, look at the uh, concept of militarising and uh, uh, creating a sense of fear within, uh, say, w- uh, Western democracies, in averted commas, that is going on apace. What role does that play in this uh, shifting of power into the hands of corporations, which is effectively what happens with neoliberalism?
5: Yes, um, well, I think that uh, what you're referring to has really proceeded a pace um, since uh, 9-11, the, uh, those uh, attacks on the uh, Twin Towers in, in New York. I think the, the rate of militarisation, if you like, of, uh, of policing operations in most rich countries was trending in that direction in any event. that that gave it a much larger impetus. The interesting thing is, though, that uh, I think that what actually predates it is a sort of military Keynesianism. Um, Where in most of the um, uh, rich countries you had um, a Keynesianism which, you know, uh, had a fairly high company tax regime and uh, provided for a redistribution of wealth from capital to labor, and that was done by, you know, a whole range of things, uh, including uh, obviously uh, high taxation for companies and, you know, large-scale nationalization, which also provided uh, employment. That didn't kill the U.S., but rather the money went into um, what's been described as military Keynesianism. Uh, so, you know, post-Second World War, the U.S. built up this huge uh, armaments uh, industry, um, which continues today to... Uh, benefit from what in many ways is, as Naomi Klein says, uh, something that's a quite deliberate state policy to keep people in a state of, of shock in order to justify this you know, tremendous expenditure on military hardware and software and military personnel.
2: Yeah, that's interesting because I think that it's relevant to a whole range of things. I think one of the examples that Naomi Klein uses is the Hurricane uh, Katrina, how they use that as an excuse to then privatise all the schools. Um, That was just one of her, you know, uh, examples of the shock doctrine. I wanted to ask about what you mentioned in the beginning, which is whether it is feasible to return to social democracy, because I think that some of the things that you were saying about the militarisation of the state and the police force really suggests that rather than giving people reforms, now all they have is repression. They don't have... Capitalism is not profitable in the same way that it used to be and they don't seem as willing to make reforms. Do you think that that's one of the reasons why social democracy is not feasible?
5: I think there are a couple of reasons why uh, it's not feasible. But one thing that we should note is that uh, following the onset of the global financial crisis in late 2008 and it's actually still with us um, You know, the world economy in rich countries have been stagnant uh, from that uh, time uh, in October 2008 until today but it was the Keynesian counter-cyclical economic policies that were used to rescue the banks at the time. There was quite a flurry of people around the world thinking that uh, well you know, neoliberalism is over, you know, one of its distinguishing features has been a series of constant crises, uh, financial crises, which were all but eliminated uh, after World War II and up to the uh, to the mid-70s, that, you know, social democracy may well return. Uh, you might recall that uh, in uh, early 2009, uh, when Kevin Rudd was prime minister, he actually raised the possibility uh, in an essay that he wrote uh, for the monthly. And much more to the left, the US literary uh, theorist Michael Hart wasn't alone at uh, the idea of communism conference in London in 2009, in thinking that after the GSC some form of socialist or Keynesian state regulation and management seemed inevitable. Now, we we well know, of course, uh, that, that that didn't occur. So Directly to the question, could it make a comeback? I think the answer has to be no uh, on the evidence, and that's even assuming that the political will was somehow mustered uh, to do it, because one of the difficulties with, with social democracy in its heyday, as we now know, is that it was a strategy for redistribution of income, but also based on a strategy of, uh, of growth. And during the 1950s and 60s, when manufacturing output uh, increased at a greater uh, level than during the Industrial Revolution, it came with a tripling of carbon dioxide uh, emissions. So we're still trying to grasp with that uh, problem today. And whilst it's not implausible that finance capital could go pear-shaped at some point and leave us with... um, you know something like a repeat of the uh, of the great recession i think the um, the real issue uh, for us all today is is climate change and we can see you know with that that you know the the big corporations uh, have got no intention of uh, of dealing with it um, so it has to be a you know a people power movement from below that uh, is going to solve this problem not a sort of social democracy, you know,
2: from above. Yes, absolutely. I think that as well what the elephant in the room, I guess, is what's happening in Greece at the moment because you talk, I guess, Riza is a, in lots of ways, a radical social democratic formation and you see the incredible blackmail that they're facing from the IMF and the Troika and the fact that, well, at the moment it looks like the Germans are preparing for the Greeks to... Default on their loans, but this is what you face if you try and bring in a social democratic program. It seems.
5: Well, yes, I think that that's true, I, I, um, and I think it's also interesting to note that the you know the nominal social democratic party in Greece, the PASOK, its vote plummeted entirely at the uh, at the last uh, election because it offered no prescriptions that would different from the Greek uh, conservatives. So that contributed uh, obviously to the rise of Syriza and one of the interesting things about the uh, about the Germans and the German banks is that uh, since 2010 Greece has received 284 billion dollars in bailout funds but 92% of that more than 260 billion went to Greek and European financial institutions and only 8% um trickled down to uh, to the people of Greece,
0: isn't that extraordinary? So the, that's extraordinary. Yeah,
5: it is. Uh, it's it, it's quite incredible. Uh, the 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 banks who, in the first instance, including the uh, the super efficient German banks, uh, should have been doing their due diligence before they started uh, lending money willy nilly. They didn't. They got caught. But instead of uh, them taking the knock on that, and you know that's that's a bad judgment that was made. So. Um, you know you live with the consequences um, they've been able to get uh, um, the funds ostensibly given to Greece by by others to bail themselves out more than 260 billion they've received whereas the Greek people have received um, a little less than, than 23 billion uh, since 2008 but that's in the last five years so the banks are laughing all the way to the bank aren't they mm.
0: it's extraordinary isn't it that uh More and more, the ordinary people of uh, society are being bound up and uh, their options are becoming smaller and smaller. It's leading to a position where you'd think that there has to be a revolution of some sort because there is a class war and only one side's fighting.
5: Well, that's right. That's what... uh, um that's what uh, a lot of, uh, well, a number of uh, um, capitalists do say. Um, that there is a class war, and uh, it's our class, the rich class, that's uh, that's winning it. It's impossible to see any change without a, a social revolution, which which has to come from below. And if you have a look at the recent British uh, elections, where you know the Labour Party there was defeated quite soundly by um, you know a, a much more conservative, you know austerity-driven you know capital driven government, I think what that shows you is that you know people at some point finally give up on labour parties and social democratic uh, parties it's quite difficult and and in Australia probably made more difficult by the fact that we've so far come through the global financial crisis in better shape than most again, the reasons uh, for it were the third biggest stimulus package in the world as a percentage of GDP besides South Korea and the US but also the resilience of Chinese demand which in turn relied on the Chinese pumping billions and billions into the economy and um, that's now, now starting to slow so you know Australia's unemployment rate is uh, is going up and, and will continue to uh, to go up it, it seems um, because what's accompanied it uh, And again, this is evidence since the uh, um, mid-'80s, where one of the things the Accord was supposed to provide for was a rejuvenation of manufacturing industry in particular. Well, it's gone the other way. Manufacturing industry has been hollowed out. Um, The wage restraint that came from workers during during that period was supposed to be used by um, companies to reinvest in plant and equipment and so on to become more internationally competitive and it didn't happen um, for the most part they didn't uh... uh invest that at all they, they just uh... took it in uh, uh... you know more 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 profits Um and the manufacturing industry today is a you know, um really a, a pale imitation of uh... what what it was in uh... in 1983 um, and it's going to get worse because um, uh, over the next uh, 18 months or so, um, the vehicle um, manufacturing industry will be closed completely and the vehicle components will also be uh, um, really hard hit. Um, and it, it, it's interesting that the, the budget uh, a couple of days ago um, um, allowed for a sort of $20,000 write-off uh, for, trade, for tradespeople people uh, in buying tools and so on. And and I doubt that any of those tools or other things that they're going to buy are manufactured in Australia.
0: Yeah, what a joke. All the money's going out. All the money's going out.
2: So do you think the lesson is we've got to get organised mm-hmm. in Australia? <laughs> Looks like the global financial crisis isn't going to miss us after all.
5: I think that that's true and and it was probably always uh, um inev- inevitable um, but I th- but I think you know during that period where the rest of the world was suffering much greater than what uh, we were I uh, I think I think we got a bit smug and had a bit complacent about it um and now it's really coming home to roost and uh, you know the the people who are already suffering um are are, are those who's you know who are unemployed those uh are pensioners those on the uh Disability pension, uh, low-income earners generally, young workers who find it impossible to get a job. I mean, in some of the uh, suburbs around Australia, youth unemployment uh, is is um is higher than fifty percent. Now that's at levels that uh, you only only see at the moment around the globe, in places like uh, like Greece. Um, there's, there's there's an enormous amount of suffering to come, uh, unfortunately, and. Uh, the unemployed in particular will be um, hard hit and uh, um, what's pleasing to me at least is that um, during the course of the 1980s there there was in fact a large unemployed uh, movement right around the country and there there are signs that 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 is coming back which uh, which is uh, a very good thing and a very necessary thing
0: and that's it for us at uh, Solidarity Breakfast. We've just been talking to John Rainford, who wrote a book called A Short History of Social Democracy. Cost costs $20. Get, you can get it from resistancebooks.com. Uh, earlier in the show, we talked to Liz Ross, who uh, wrote uh, Dare to Struggle, Dare to Win, but and she had lots to, to say about uh, what's going on with the Abbott government attack on the CFMEU. Uh, in between, we had uh, Marcus Harrington having a chat with David Kerner, Dave Kerner from uh, the CFMU in South Australia. And, of course, this is the week that was. So this is us saying goodbye.
2: And uh, we'll see you later.
0: Yep, that's right. And, uh, or you'll hear us later. And uh, upcoming next is uh, Asia Pacific Currents. You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia.